My name is Miles Morales. I'm Brooklyn's one and only Spider-Man. And things are going great. Oh, yeah. You were supposed to be here at five. All right, whatever. Whatever? Wow. Whatever? So are you like a cow or a Dalmatian? I am the spot. <laughs> it's not funny. Don't, don't do that. Miles' grades are pretty good. A in AP Physics. That's my little man. And a B in Spanish. What? Ooh, okay. Miles. Are you trying to Mira, that's why I'm going I gotta go. All right, everybody. Bye. He's lying to you. And I think you know it. What's up, danger? Miles! Wanna get out of here? Oh! When? So wait a minute. There's an elite crew with all the best spider people in it? Who's the new guy? This is unbelievable. This is the lobby. Miguel O'Hara. The whole thing was his idea. What's a guy got to do to join this spider team? You can never be part of this. Don't even get me started on Doctor Strange and the little nerd back on Earth 1999-99. Come on, go easy on the kid. He had a terrible teacher. Peter. Miles. Mayday. You have a baby? I have a baby. <laughs> I'll take it from here. Miles, being Spider-Man is a sacrifice. You have a choice between saving one person and saving every world. <sighs> Send me home. Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host, Rob Wallace. And as always, it's a real delight to be joined by my co-host, Mr. Rob Daniel. And as always, it's a real delight to be here and very happy to be back in the same room with you. Yeah, it's been a little while. It has. So, listeners of our previous episode on Fast 10 will have heard that Rob was in Japan. So, Rob, before we move on, give us a quick recap of your Japan holiday. Yeah, I was um, in Japan for uh, about two and a half weeks. A chunk of that time in Tokyo. Also visited Kyoto and Hiroshima. Yeah, ate and drank and walked about and took in the culture and had a wonderful time. Although... Going to see, uh, go, visiting um, Hiroshima and the, the Peace Park and the rest of it made me think, yeah, watching Oppenheimer now is going to have a... Added resonance? Yeah, an added resonance. <laughs> um, cool. I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad you had a nice holiday. Two and a half weeks. Longest time I think I've been away since I... Mm. <laughs> Come in. Longest time I've been away, I think, since I started the job that I'm currently in. So, for at least a few years. Cool. Okay, then. So, yeah, what are we talking about today? Uh, today we're talking about primarily Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, though there are a few other films we're going to sprinkle in along the way. Yeah, so you've seen some. What would you like to start with? Shall we start with, apropos of nothing, the new live-action Little Mermaid? Well, yes, as long as you don't call it live-action. <laughs> I mean, it is. Photo-realistic. No, it's got human actors. It's Yeah. <laughs> but it's... Okay. Yeah, so you saw The Little Mermaid. Did you, did you see that in Japan? Yes. <laughs> so you saw Little Mermaid and Fast 10 in Japan. Well, Fast 10 was because we had to do it for the podcast, and it was very nice of you to send something in. Why did you go and see Little Mermaid in Japan? Because I wanted to see a film in Kyoto. Fair enough. I did do the same when I was there. I saw The Born Supremacy, which shows how long ago it was. <laughs> so, okay, so you were in Kyoto, a beautiful city, and you went to see a movie. Was it a beautiful film? It was all right, actually. I do tend to approach the live-action, quote-unquote live-action, Disney uh, remakes somewhat cynically. That's not even because, you know, 
cash grabs, which they are, or because it's, oh, Disney gone woke. It's because they're always inelegant, there's no charm to them, and they're always half an hour longer than the original. At least. I think Little Mermaid was primed probably to do quite well, comparatively, because at least there's a certain scale to it, human scale to it. Yeah. And also that, you know, Disney have, turns out they're quite good at this sort of thing. You know, Pirates of the Caribbean, it's almost like they've had another franchise which is explores adventure on and below the waves. Music's good. The, the singing is good. How, um, I'm going to try and figure out how to pronounce her name because... Halberry? Halberry. So, yeah. For, I know. <laughs> I was listening to the film cast and every time they said Halberry, I thought, I know Halle Berry was in Oh, no, it's not, is it? <laughs> she must get that a lot. Um... Large... So she was the Little Mermaid. Sorry. Yes, yeah, she's the Little Mermaid. She's Ariel. Yeah, it's like, oh, this largely works. The kind of CGI spectacles there. Is it's... she good in the role? She's good in the role. Um, yeah, there's not really that much to say about it other than this is fine. There, there's a scene with a shark attack. That's going to be some kid's formative like nightmare. <laughs> oh wow! Is it so? Is it kind of uh, the modern equivalent of the whale from the original Pinocchio? Well, no, it's closer to Jaws. Mm, okay. Like, you know you know the shot in Jaws where the shark comes in through the side of the boat? Yes. It's pr- basically that. Well, that is quite intense. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually a shock for these films because they tend to be sub-all right. They tend to be like, oh, God, that had no charm. Does this have some charm? Yeah, it's got some charm. I think, I think it does help when they tend to focus on humans. Mm. I mean, you're kind of thinking what else they're going to do now, right? So what else have they got left? Hercules? <laughs> the Hunchback of Notre Dame? That one would be, I think, quite a difficult one to do. Yeah, because uh, it's like, do we cast a differently abled actor in the role of the Hunchback? It's like... Or do we do CGI? Uh, you know what? They can do Hercules as long as they actually cast Danny DeVito as Phil. That's fine. Just, you just... Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay, well... Yeah, The Little Mermaid. Well, I yeah, I will probably check it out a little bit when it comes on to Disney+. Plus. I'll check it out a little bit when it comes on to Disney+. It's like, I will watch the first five minutes of it. And yeah, which is actually fair enough. I'll give it 15 minutes to see if I can watch the rest of it. Because it is over two hours, right? And the original oh, yeah. was 85 minutes. Yeah, yeah. It is it is too long. So it's almost like another hour. It's that whole Dumbo thing again, where it's like, you added an hour to Dumbo. Yeah, at least it's not adding half an hour to The Lady and the Tramp. Yeah. Or... What was it, 45 minutes added on to Aladdin? <laughs> Guys, one of the wonderful things about these films is that they are so efficient in their storytelling. It's so graceful in the way that they, you know, the economy of scale when it comes to telling this rip-roaring adventure. Why are you bloating them? Yeah, see, I think this is... <laughs> I don't know, this is definitely damned with fame praise. Actually, that's not entirely true. I was about to say, this is, this could be my favourite Rob Marshall film, but he did do Mary Poppins Returns, so... Yeah, that would be, yeah, that's that was a genuinely good and I And I am quite fond of Nine, <laughs> for reasons <laughs> that I can't for reasons I can't defend. Is it Marion Cotillard in that Basque? I mean, that's definitely a selling point. No, I just, just like Daniel Day-Lewis going around being Italian and singing. It's like, there's something about, it's like, <laughs> this, this is just... Took two days to watch that film. <laughs> So, so rubbish. Well, moving on to a slightly different film, I saw Sisu. Could you look up and see who the director and who the star is? Jalmari Helanda. Is the director? Is the director. And Jorma Tomila is the lead actor. Jorma Tomila. Jorma Tomila. Jorma Tomila. So this is very similar to a film... Well, the uh, the basic plot is very similar to a film that's just landed on Netflix called Blood and Gold, which is all based around Nazis and a hunt for gold. 
this one is about a Finnish soldier who basically decided to opt out of World War II because he'd lost everyone during the Russo-Finnish War, which happened just before World War II. It's when Russia tried to invade Finland and was repelled, but obviously at some cost to the Finns. So obviously some parallels there with Ukraine. So this guy has basically gone off and become a gold prospector during the war, has some gold on him, comes across a group of SS and Wehrmacht soldiers who uh, realise he has his gold on him. They know the war's going to end pretty badly for the Nazis. They all know that they're going to be tried for war crimes and think, well, actually, with that gold, that can be our getaway. So they try to get his gold from him. There then ensues an incredibly bloody action film it's so bloody, this film, and outrageous in its gore. And the action scenes are very good as well. And it's one of those things, it has certain things to it about uh, creating monsters out of the chaos that you bring to the universe and things like that. So there's the idea that this guy could be the universe trying to get its revenge on what's happened because of the Nazis. And they have brought this cosmic force onto themselves. Or you can see it as a guy who's just really, really angry because they're trying to take his gold and he's not going to give it away uh, and has an axe. <laughs> so there are different ways to read the film. I think it's one of those where... It's not as deep as I thought it was going to be. It is a very, very straightforward action film with lots and lots of gore in it. But it did make me chuckle as I was watching it and thought this, yes, this this kind of delivers on its premise. So yeah, that was Sisu, so S-I-S-U, and is worth a look. Uh, well, for another film that delivers on its premise, Master Gardener. <laughs> right, okay, which one is that? Uh, it is a, uh, well, let's, let's see, it's a, it is a, a two-word title, and it's about... A solitary man. He uh, he has a diary, and he has a dark past, and he's seeking some obscurely seeking some sort of redemption. Can we guess the writer director? Judd <laughs> uh, Apatow. Yeah, it's, a, it's the it's the latest by Paul Schrader. And what has he done in the past that would fit into that? I mean, uh, probably most famously, Taxi Driver. Yeah. Uh, more recently, First Reformed, which I do think is a masterpiece, and The Card Counter. Um, and Light Sleeper. And Light Sleeper, yeah, there's... American Gigolo. <laughs> I mean, he does like his two-word titles. I don't think they've all got diaries, but they are all kind of that sort of existential story that he tells with his transcendental style. Yeah, so Paul Schrader's one of those... I mean, I really like him as a filmmaker. I think he's a very interesting writer. He also wrote but didn't direct things like The Last Temptation of Christ, The Mosquito Coast. Yeah, he is, I think, one of the great giants of recent cinema, Recently, he's struggled to get films made, including The Canyons, which was a Lindsay Lohan one and a bunch of porn stars, which I think was Kickstarter funded. Yeah, it just seems as if he's, like Brian De Palma, struggling to get films made. But you think, well, guys, you are in your 70s or 80s now. So is it worth continuing? I mean, is this, was this one worth the effort? Yes. I mean, I, I, I like this one more than I liked um, The Card Counter. Also, you also think it's got to be, you'd think it'd be reasonably simple to get a budget for because they're not showy films and he always has a cast involved. And in this one, it's about a gardener. So it is actually about a gardener. It's actually about a gardener. He, he manages an, an estate, the Gracewood Gardens, and he's kind of very neat and controlled, but without being fastidious. And he, he's played by, um, this is Narvel Roth, played by Joel Edgerton, and he looks after this garden uh, that's that's owned by uh, Mrs. Ha- Mrs. Haverhill, who's played by Sigourney Weaver, and then one day her, uh, I think it's her grandniece turns up, or her grandniece, you know, she brings her grandniece in, uh, her grandniece called Maya, played by Quintessa Swindell, and she becomes apprentice to Novel, and 
it's one of those films that's kind of replete in metaphor. You know, there are lines like gardening is a belief in the future and, you know, planting seeds and seeds coming up. But it's really underplayed. It's really nicely judged. And obviously Marvel does have a dark past and it may or may not come back in some form. Mm. Um, it's formal without being prissy and, you know, kind of nice. Again, it's, ni- it's really nicely understated. Um, I don't, I, I, it's one of those, I don't want to spoil anything about it. I wasn't entirely convinced by the third act in which it kind of fulfills some of the obligations. I think that this kind of man of violence plot is... again, But it never kind of, you know, to fall back on the card counter, tips its hand. Mm. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I'm still slightly jet-bagged, and I saw this yesterday morning, (laughs) having landed Saturday afternoon, 15-hour flight... Right, let's move on then so we can get to Spider-Man while you're still got some energy in you. Yeah, very quickly, um, Ennis Men, the new one by Mark Jenkins. Um, Which we have previously discussed on the pod. You did. Um, I I caught up with it. Um, yeah, it was... I liked it. I thought it was good. It was good primarily in its look and feel. I mean, he does make these things that look like they were shot in a previous decade. This one looks like something from the early 70s. It just looks like something that would have been on BBC One in 1972. It looks like one of the old plays that now looks like a bit like a film. Shot on 16mm, I think it was, uh, but it's colour, whereas his previous film, Bait, was black and white. It's a folk horror tale of this woman on an island, as you would have heard if you'd heard Rob talk about it on the previous set a few episodes ago. She's having to do something which may or may not have a supernatural element to it. I didn't think the story was any great shakes. It was one of those things where it's so kind of lifted from those things from the 70s that it's like, I think this is pastiche. But it's done well. And when pastiche is done well, it can be quite enjoyable. I just don't think there's anything here that we haven't seen before. And I don't think it's as exciting as Bait, for example. I thought that Bait was a much better film. Bait was my film of the year it came out. And you preferred, yeah, 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 so yeah. you preferred that to this. Um... It looked great, though. I loved... Again, it was shot in 4x3. The camera choices were great. The direction visually was great. It had this wonderful, eerie atmosphere to it. But when you start to really strip away the story, I think you find there's not much there. I'll always watch his films. Um, I just kind of hope that he, I don't know, breaks out and tries something a little bit different because what seemed quite radical with Bait now seems a little bit like the way you're kind of doing what everyone else does now, which is tries to replicate something from the 70s Mm. because... It's cool to try and make something look like it was made in a different time. It's like, well, yeah, it is, but a lot of people do that now, so it doesn't seem very fresh, and maybe that is not as exciting a voice as you could have. I really, I liked the ambiguity of it. I um, thought it had a really well-judged tone. Mm. And and, and because, you know, folk horror has a habit of tripping up directors that I really like Mm. in recent years, you know, um, Men, the Alex Garland film, um, the Gareth Evans film Apostle, and actually I I think Mark Jenkins just about threaded the needle on it. Yes, okay, well, um, have you got another one that you want to do before we go to Spider-Man? Oh, yes, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. Is that a series? It's a, no, it's a film. It's a film? Yeah. It's on Amazon? It is. No, I thought it was a series for some reason, like a four-parter. Okay, right. Is that the Afghanistan one? It is. It reminded me, it stars Jake Gyllenhaal, which reminded me watching it, it's been 18 years since Jarhead. (laughs) Yeah, that's horrible. And you know, and this, this is a film that kind of has to open with a with a with text to explain the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. <laughs> and in all fairness, it is set in 2018, but it's like this is a period film. Yeah, 
we were in Afghanistan for 20 years. An absolute waste of lives and resources and money and just a complete you know, disaster. But okay, it, so what's the... It, it opens the using the film The Horse, um, uh, Horse With No Name. And it's like, no, I, if this is a period film, I want period songs from... In all fairness, it's set in 2018, so it's, you know, <laughs> I don't know, gotcha. <laughs> the Covenant, also known as Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. During the war in Afghanistan, a local interpreter risks his own life to carry an injured sergeant across miles of gruelling terrain. And uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is the sergeant in question, and the uh, interpreter Ahmed is played by Dar Salim, apparently based on a true story. And it's, es- it's essentially a piece of the idea of the covenant, and the covenant that the US, bro- well, the US and the UK broke is essentially we abandoned our civilian contacts when we pulled out of Afghanistan. But we did rescue the pets. Yeah, we did rescue the pets. I mean, at least we did that. Jesus, um, so terrible. It's a well-shot war film that feels quite tonally different from most of what Guy Ritchie's done. There's none of... I mean, there's a bit of banter and repartee, but it's kind of played quite naturally between the soldiers. It's just a well-made war film. I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal can kind of do intense, slightly wry... He's basically Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal is not giving a performance that stretches him, necessarily. It's, it's a weird film to judge because it's like... Politically, Guy Ritchie's a fairly conservative mm. person... It's like, feels like the politics for this are almost in the right place. <laughs> I mean, it inevitably does fall back on there. We are killing, we are just, you know, killing dozens of Taliban. But it's like, okay, you know, of, but it's like, they are the Taliban. It's fine. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. They're, like, they're like the Nazis in Caesar. You don't have to feel too bad about it. So the inherent sense of fairness that you hope that uh, the guy Richard would have about, like, if someone helps you and then is at risk of death because they helped you and you abandoned them, that maybe not be the best thing in the world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's okay. Um, it's like, I like how everybody politically ended up on the fucking Afghanistan. What the fuck? Because it was such a disaster when they left. I mean, when there are people clinging to a plane, you know things are pretty desperate. Um, now I know that it's a film. I just thought it was like a, it was a mini And it's available on Prime Video. Yeah, okay. Well, I've got a couple of corrections to make. Um, one, actually, from a few episodes ago. Could you look up Evil Dead Rise? And could you look... Which is now available after purchase, to rental purchase. Oh, well, there you go. They, they do come around so quickly with this 31 days exclusive theatrical window now. And the little girl in that. Could you look her up? Is that Nell Fisher? Yes. So, and could you look her up? See what her first film was. North Spur? Yes, because Evil Dead Rise, I, on the podcast, said this is introducing. So I assumed it was her first film, but she's done a Scarlett Johansson, who had the Horse Whisperer as introducing Scarlett Johansson, even though she'd been in, I think, a Home Alone movie before that or something. So, um, so yeah, so, so Nell Fisher would have had some movie experience before making Evil Dead Rise. It wasn't her first film, but I think it might have been a first for her in some ways in terms of the amount of blood she was having to swim around in. I think it was Bo Derrick also had introducing when she was in 10, even though she'd made Orca Kill a Whale a couple of years earlier. So yeah, it's all, it's all this introducing business. Mm. All I'm saying is it's, it's a bit deceitful. <laughs> and another one, uh, on the previous episode when talking about the Fast and Furious films, I said that Fast 6 was the one where the Staith is taking his revenge against people. It was, of course, Fast 7. So, yes, those are the two corrections I was thinking. I must remember to say that. Cool. Okay, well, shall we move on to Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse? Yes. <laughs> Good, because if you said no, they'd be like, oh, I don't know what we're going to talk about then. Should we do the synopsis? Yeah, go on. Miles Morales catapults across the multiverse, where he encounters a team of Spider-People charged with protecting its very existence. When the heroes clash on how to handle a new threat, Miles must redefine what it means to be a hero. Yeah, um, yeah. That- 
kind of sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah. So yes, the follow-up to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the 2018 film that uh, I missed at the cinema for various reasons and just could not get along to see it. And then it was on an IMAX day, but sold out within minutes and it was really annoying. So I just bought it blind on 4K and then thought, oh, it's absolutely amazing. Watched it quite a few times that year and it placed number five in my top films of the decade. So I thought that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was the best superhero film of the decade. God, it was just such a tonic to just how bland uh, the MCU was getting and just how tiresome the DCEU was getting. It was also like a great meta-commentary on superhero films and comic books. It had this wonderful visual style. It was also just a really good script and a really good origin story that did something fresh with a story that we all know pretty much by heart now. And very elegantly introduced a whole load of other Spider-Man variants who'd been in comics for decades. But, well, I didn't know about them. I didn't know there was a Spider-Ham. I didn't know there was a um, a Spider-Man Noir who was like a detective and it was in black and white. And Spider-Ham, of course, is a pig. It's like, but you don't need to know that to enjoy the film. That's one of the amazing things about Into the Spider-Verse, I thought, was just how elegantly it introduced these characters. Multiple characters in a two-hour movie. God, I love that film so much. And then five years later, here is the sequel. So again, we have Shamik Moore as Mar Morales, who is the Spider-Man of uh, this particular telling, or he's the main Spider-Man of this particular telling, and Hayley Steinfeld as Gwen Stacy. We have Oscar Isaac as Miguel O'Hara, who's Spider-Man 2099. He's like a sci-fi from the future Spider-Man. And Daniel Kaluuya a Spider-Punk, and what other Spider variants do we have that are worth mentioning? Oh, I'm just trying to think of ones that aren't necessarily, that aren't spoilers. Well, I'd say the ones that appear at the beginning. So uh, Spider-Woman is in this, played by Zay Ray. Yeah. I'm um, sorry, Issa Ray, who is like a Pam Greer type in this, isn't she? Yeah. On a, on a, on a motorbike. On a motorbike. She was cool. And yeah, Spider-Man India. And I have to admit, I can't remember the actor's name. Who was, who was oh, the Cal voice? Sony. Who was it, sorry? Callan Sony. Yeah. Who people would probably best know from playing Depinder in the Deadpool films. Oh, okay, right. And we have Jason Schwartzman as... The Spot. As Jonathan Om, (laughs) a.k.a. The Spot, who is like a human Rorschach test, isn't he? He's like, but all of the black patches are actually... Portals. To other worlds sometimes, or to that thing over there, if you want to rob an ATM or something. Yeah, so as Rob said, from the synopsis, so Dr. Om, The Spot causes a spot of bother that kind of threatens the multiverse and the spider team have to try and right this wrong. It's a big movie. It's two hours, 20 minutes. It is the first of a two-parter, much like Fast X. And it comes after, I think, one of the best films of the decade. So, Rob, what did you make of Across the Spider-Verse? I really enjoyed it. The visuals are absolutely stunning. I mean, every single frame is both really considered and just fizzing with energy. Mm. And it's very it's smart, it's funny, it's heartfelt. There's so much going on. I'm not a Spider-Man expert. And, and this has got everything from like the most obscure, blink and you'll miss it, you have to have an in-depth knowledge of the, com- of the comics, to like, oh yeah, that's it. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's so good like that. The voice cast are great. I mean, Shmeet Moore as Miles Morales. It's the second film, so it's the film about kind of growing into yourself and you know, the, the difficult the difficult it's the difficult second album and you know how you how you change and 
I just had a blast. It's being, I'm not sure how I feel about this whole two-parter thing. <laughs> because, you know, Fast X did it. Obviously, the new Mission Impossible film's going to do it. Yeah, that's a very good point. It does seem like every film this year is kind of like, oh, you know, well, most of them, actually, um, yeah, having mentioned Oppenheimer earlier, Oppenheimer and Barbie, I'm assuming, <laughs> will not do that. I agree with you. I love this film. And when you say that the visuals are great, that can sometimes be like, oh, okay, right, so there's nothing else there, right? So no, 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 uh, the visuals are integral to the success of this movie. I looked at the budget and it was $100 million, which now seems like, oh, that's not a lot of money, is it, for like a blockbuster? It's still a huge amount of money. The fact that Sony let this film be as radical visually as it is, I think is a bit of a miracle. Because it is visually much more experimental than the first film. And the first film had people kind of questioning whether they were seeing it projected right at the cinemas. It was like, it looks a bit weird. It's like, well, yeah, sometimes it looks like a comic book. Sometimes it will have um, slightly rough edges. That's intentional. There are scenes like, you know, the style changes. I mean, like the early scenes involving Gwen are all done as watercolours. That's a thing. Like impressionistic. Yeah. And there are sequences in this film that are like pop art that invoke old fanzines, that kind of um, homemade cut-and-paste feel of stuff. Yeah, particularly with the spider-punk. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, um, it leans into that. There's impressionism, as you say, expressionism, and the CGI animation sometimes gives way to what is supposed to be very flat, old-style animation, that kind of old, old-cell animation that has, well, not as much 3D effect to it. There's Lego, there's... Mild, minor spoiler, a bit of live action in there. Yeah, there's some things that you see there, and it's like, and that's the thing is that all, but all of it is to reflect a mental state or to comment on the drama of the moment. It's like none of this is just because it looks nice, even though there are so many shots I just want to hang on my wall because it looks so gorgeous. But all of this has a reason to look this way. Absolutely astonishing. And to be honest, it was the visuals that kind of helped me through the opening 25 minutes of this film. But I thought that the opening was hectic and frenetic in a way that Into the Spider-Verse wasn't. It felt like Into the Spider-Verse played at the wrong speed. This is an album, but you're playing it as if it's a single. This is too fast. And you're throwing these characters in to an opening that plays like a recap of a Gwen Stacy movie. It's like the opening 10 minutes seem to be recapping Acts 2 and 3 from a Gwen Stacy movie. And then you're throwing in other characters. And it's like, okay, there's there's a lot of movement and a lot of plot information being thrown. And I don't think it's been done as well as Into the Spider-Verse. Then when it got into the Miles Morales story, and he's having to juggle schoolwork and parental expectations and crime fighting, which is the classic Spider-Man story. He's a teenager, so he's got all these other things going on, and he's also a superhero, and he's having to try and fit that in as well. That, at first, also seemed a bit like, okay, we're kind of going through some motions here. So I'm absolutely desperate to see it again. Yeah, about half hour in, it was like, it just seemed to click. And then it was like, okay, this is good, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And then it just got better and better. And I was worried from the trailers that it was going dark, because one of the great things about Into the Spider-Verse was it was so light and fun and just had such a wonderful energy about it. And this one seemed to do in that thing of going dark, which it does do, but it does it in that Empire Strikes Back way of, like, the hero's journey. And, like, the Empire Strikes Back has loads and loads of climaxes at the end. There are, like, yeah, multiple climaxes to this film. And, it, and I thought, well, that wasn't the end of the film. There's still another climax to go. And a big plot reveal. And then it ends, much like the Empire Strikes Back did. And at that point, it was like, oh, if, 
there wasn't a train strike tomorrow, I would come in and work in the office so I could go and see this again after work. <laughs> but there was a train strike, so I didn't, because <laughs> I couldn't get into town. I'm with you, I thought this was great. I actually thought this was a five-star movie, and I can't wait to see it again. Yeah, I'd say... <laughs> Follow that, please. I, I had a tremendous amount of fun with it. My The audience I saw it with were a little bit disruptive. Oh, really? There were some kids, and it's like... And there was a baby, and it was like... Why? And, and, and there was suddenly a couple of words in front of me. He was just on a phone. Oh, Jesus. And it's like, I don't... I, I If I pick in a fight with one person, I'm picking a fight with everyone, so... It's the reason why I really cannot stand going to the cinema sometimes. It's like, I love film. If, if you love film, you sometimes hate cinema. And that is more and more now, I think, because audiences can be shit. I was very lucky. The audience, this was like a gala screening. The audience were all up for it. And actually, to your point about, like, not being a Spider-Man expert, I'm not either. There were laughs coming from different areas when they saw something. And it was like, ah, oh, I think that had some extra meaning that I didn't get. <laughs> and what I like about it is that it doesn't impact on your enjoyment of the film. That's there for the fans. But the bigger story is the one that everyone can enjoy. This one's got three directors, right? It's Lord and Miller and... I don't think it's... Um... Is it not Lord and Miller? No, they wrote it and they produced it, so I'm sure they were very hands-on. But there are three... Oh, it's Joaquim Dos Santos, Kemp Powers and Justin K. Thompson. And the original Into the Spider-Verse had three directors as well, but they weren't any of those. So this is a brand new directing team. Who's the other writer? So it's Lord and Miller and there's... David Callahan. David Callahan, that's it. Who wrote Which Shang-Chi. sounds like the real... I don't know if it was obviously Peter Porker, but it sounds like an alternative identity for Spider-Pig. Yes, it does. David, David Callahan. Callahan. <laughs> does, yeah. He wrote Shang-Chi. He also wrote Wonder Woman 84. It is a big story being told here. Did you think that it worked as the first part of a two-part film that you'll have to pay twice to see the entire story? Yes, I mean, it's two hours and 20 minutes long, so it's difficult to say that, you know, they've cut it down or they've in any way, like, you know, bifurcated the narrative. I do love the fact that like, Joaquin Dos Santos, who's one of the directors, kind of is best known for directing work on animated, t- you know, various TV animation like Justice League, um, Avatar, G.I. Joe, and that Kemp Powers is a best known as a playwright who wrote One Night in Miami. Right, wow, okay. Which we saw at uh, the film adaptation a couple of years ago at the LFF, which is about a, a fictional, a fictionalised account of a real-life meeting between Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, um, Jim Brown and Sam Cooke. It was a good film, that. I think we watched that virtually, didn't we? Because that was during lockdown. Yes. Yes, yeah, so yeah, so it has quite a good pedigree in terms of the people that it's bringing on board. I just thought this was really well done. I mean, some of the animation, the, there's a moment when the spot is kind of wrestling with himself in terms of what he actually is from like an existential perspective. And the animation style there is very much like the final episode of Neon Genesis Evangelion, which was so experimental that it actually led to death threats to the creator because he dared to end his series on this really, really weird final episode to the point where he then had to make two feature-length alternate endings as a corrective that was in the 90s. Yeah, I, I'm totally on board. We should, we should all just bully our creatives. That's what we should do. Bully them until we they make the thing we want in the way we want it. That's the thing. It's a really interesting example of early toxic fandom because that was during the 90s and it was like, what have you done? What have you done? And it's like, he's done something that is in, completely in keeping with the radical mad nature of this show. And yes, it's not what you wanted, but what you wanted was just a big smackdown. <laughs> and he's gone and done something a bit different. But yeah, I'm trying to think of other things I really liked about this movie. 
movie, it's in the trailer, there is a point when they go to a Spider-Verse, they go across a Spider-Verse even, where you get a lot of different incarnations of Spider-Man. That is a very, very good scene, I thought. Yeah, and the chase and how all the different Spider-People will operate just that community of spider persons <laughs> so, well actually spider animals as well and all these different things there's just so much there's so many jokes in it it's like this is a great action film the action set pieces are thrilling and it also has a comic book look as much as a painterly look it looks like the panels of a comic book have been brought to life and uses the fact that it's motion in very very interesting ways when it's moving from one panel to another actually reminded me of Ang Lee's The Hulk in that way But it's also a comedy as well. There are some great laughs in here. And it plays as a teen romance. And I thought ultimately the the relationship between Miles and Gwen was very affecting and really sweet. And then gets really interesting for the next film towards the end. And do you want to talk about the India sequence as well? Oh yeah, when they're Mumbatton, isn't it? Yeah. Which is, I can't, I don't know the name of the comic. It is taken from the comics. Spider-Man India. Spider-Man India. That sounds likely. But I mean, that is a pretty prosaic title. Spider-Man India. In 2004, I think that came out. Uh, again, I mean, like, yeah, shamefully, I just never even heard of that. And it's like, I just don't read Spider-Man. I used to read it as, when I was a kid, I used to get the Spider-Man weekly comic, but I haven't read any Spider-Man as an adult. But um... I'd like the character, they had the, they had the Ben Riley version of Spider-Man in there. He's the really tortured one. Yeah, I hadn't heard of him, but he's the one that's voiced by Andy Samberg. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, and he just... He's just famous in within Spider-Man canon for just like, he just went through a fucking rough time and they kept on killing him off and bringing him back. Oh, right. So when was this? This was like, I mean, I think he was created back in the 70s, but this like all this stuff primarily happened to him during the 90s when they mm. went a bit grim dark with a lot of the Spider-Man, well, look at the Marvel in general. He's just, you know, famously suffered. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like the martyred Spider-Man. Uh, so Spider-Man India, what's the name of the character again? Is it? Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's, as you said, it's Mumbatton. I thought that was amazing. That world they created that was Mumbai and Manhattan with a splash of London in there as well. And again, a completely different visual style to what you got in other areas. And it would be interesting to see, is that based on the look of the comic? Was that something that they chose for the film? Has much more of like a sketched kind of feel to it. But again, it was absolutely dazzling. I mean, there were just frequent moments when it was like, this is a treat, a joy to see this film on a big screen. I mean, yeah, I would strongly recommend that you go and see it on a big screen. Just make sure your audience is okay. Go at a time of day where your audience could be behaving themselves and not bringing in babies. It's like, why? Why? Kids are going to be bored by this as well, I think. I think if you're a six-year-old, I don't think it's going to hold the attention. Why would you do that? Yeah, and I say I really strongly recommend it. It's also done really well financially, hasn't it? You know what? I completely forgot to look up how it's done. How is it done? It's already on 208 million. That's not bad. Why don't you do it in the States? Uh, $120 million domestic. Oh, that's very good. Twice as much almost as what Fast 10 did in its opening weekend. It's only been out three days, yeah. Yeah. Mm, well, that bodes well. well. I mean, obviously, there will be a number two. I did not know that Fast 10 wasn't shot back-to-back and that it's going to be two years before the next one comes out. And Vin Diesel's actually talking about it being a trilogy now. Good. Chaos. Chaos. <laughs> but yeah, I did not know that Fast 10 hadn't been shot back-to-back. I just assumed it had been shot back-to-back. So I'm going to have to wait until next year for, the, for that and next year for this and next year for Dead Reckoning. And apparently, reportedly, Vin Diesel's had a falling out with Jason Momoa because he thought Jason Momoa was scene stealing, which he is, but he's also the best, like one of the better things about that movie. Yeah, indeed. It's like, well, yeah, he's the villain. And were you not there on set when he was doing his stuff? Because presumably that is all, well, a lot of that would be ad-libbed, but it also 
brought a lot of life to like a franchise that sometimes can be quite leaden. So anyway, I just think that the Matrix got it right when it said, okay, here's the first part of the end of this story. This is May and the next part's going to be in November. (laughs) So therefore in one year you will have had the whole film or the whole story. Now it's like, yeah, because June as well. I mean, June was like a massive gamble in terms of like, here's June part one. We don't know if there's going to be a part two. It's like, (laughs) but happily there will be a part two. But it's like, well, I just think that a year between this stuff now is like maybe... And I, again, think that might be a fiscal thing. It's like, well, we're done for this and we don't worry about that quarter because we have other things, but we need something for that particular quarter next year. So, right, so a year to see the end of this story. Okay. Fast 10, I thought, I don't know, it's fine. I mean, yeah, it's fine. I'm sure that I'll remember this ending on the next one. But with Spider-Man, I was thinking, is this going to be satisfying? The ending, and we'll, we'll get into spoilers very, very quickly in a minute. But there were enough plot twists and climaxes that I thought, okay, this is actually like a satisfying story being told here. So you are doing The Empire Strikes Back. You are ending it on a big cliffhanger, but you don't come out feeling shortchanged. So is there anything else to say about Spider-Verse from your end? I'm glad that it stuck the landing. Well, let's get into spoilers. If you haven't seen the film, please don't listen because we will talk about spoilers and it is well worth seeing. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you again very soon. There will now be a bit of a trailer and then you'll be in spoilers. I can't lose one more friend. This isn't what we talked about. You knew? I had no idea what you're doing. Everyone keeps telling me how my story is supposed to go. Nah, I'm going to do my own thing. And now you're in spoilers. So, what were the nice things about this movie that you thought, oh, I wasn't expecting that? Donald Glover? Yeah. (laughs) That was a really good moment. Is that because he is in Homecoming playing... The Prowler. Playing a character that's meant to become the Prowler. Yeah, he's the... And for whatever reason, they just never really paid that off. So they're like, we'll just do that in this entirely actually separate franchise. (laughs) Absolutely. It was like... Because when I saw Homecoming, I saw that at a preview screening with a friend of the podcast, Ian Bird. Ian afterwards had to tell me who Donald Glover was playing and said, oh yeah, he's the uncle of Miles Morales. Miles Morales is another Spider-Man. Yeah, because he plays Aaron Davis, who's in Across the Spider-Verse, or and Into the Spider-Verse, voiced by Mahershala Ali, I think. He is. Then, of course, set all of the fandom ablaze that Miles Morales might be appearing in an MCU film. As you said, that didn't come to pass, and Donald Glover didn't play the Prowler. But here seems to have played the Prowler and be in captivity, right? He seems to be serving his time. Oh, that's clever. That was a nice touch. You also get clips from other Spider-Man films in there as well, and that I thought was nicely done, and we'll be talking about that sort of thing more. Um, Interesting that we saw, you you saw um, Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire, they reference Tom Holland when they talk about like the geek and Doctor Strange and the geek from I can't I can't which the MCU universe yeah and it's it's weird because it's like it references and actually explicitly has characters from the MCU but it's like this is its own separate thing that will not impact the MCU I wonder if the MCU said yeah you're not going to use any of our stuff because we don't want this to be part of that because we've got our own thing and we don't know what you're going to do with it Again, the amount of meetings and phone calls and emails that must have flown back and forth about all this stuff. But as I see that, yeah, I did like the Lego moment. I thought that was very nice. Again, of course, uh, Lord and Miller did the Lego movie. Um, so that was a nice little throwback to that. And when he put this Spider-Man kind of head on, it was <laughs> very well done. Yeah, there was... And also the Venom crossover. What was that? When the Spot goes to that corner shop 
And that's Mrs. Chen from Venom films. Right. I did not get that, I have to admit. Yeah, I wondered who that was. I did love the ending in terms of when Miles goes to that Earth, because of course there are lots and lots of different Earths in this because it's all a big multiverse, that he thinks is his own, but then turns out to not be his own. Because it's the one where the spider that bit him came from. Yes, and he is, much like at the beginning of the film, with Peter Parker becomes the lizard. At the end of the film, he is the prowler. In this version, Spider-Man becomes, or the person that is Spider-Man, becomes a baddie. Yeah, actually, I thought that was a really, really nice twist at the end and a nice way to end it and set up the next one, which is called Beyond the Spider-Verse. So it would be interesting to see what they do with that because this does go across the Spider-Verse, literally. That chase up that kind of train thing, I think, I think is that a reference to Cowboy Bebop? I think that might be like a bit of an homage to that. There's a similar thing in Cowboy Bebop, I think. There's lots of little nods to Akira in there, which is all great because it's like, well... It's there, and it's there if you get it, if it's just like an Easter egg, because this film is full of Easter eggs. Yeah, but it was a nice touch when it turns out that his uncle's still alive, his dad is the one that's dead, and his uncle is a lackey to him. I did like that. And did, did you recognise the voice of the Peter Parker from Gwen's universe, the one who turned into the lizard? No, who was that? Jack Quaid. Oh, because he was billed at the end, and I wondered who he played, yes. Oh, that was Jack Quaid, was it? Oh, wow. At the end, when Gwen Stacy goes, is in the right universe, and sees his parents... Because I'll think about, like, there will be a fixed point where things can't change. And it will be the death of someone who isn't his uncle. Strongly suggested his dad's going to die. And I thought, is that going to be this thing where Peter Parker accidentally does it? But then it turns out he's not even in that universe with Gwen Stacy's. That whole scene, I thought, was played for really good suspense and really great tension. Because you didn't know where it was going. Yeah, this film mixes moods and undulates very well. What do you think of the ending? I thought it was effective, yeah. I, I wasn't expecting it to end there. I was like, this works, but I was like, also, then I looked at my watch after the film and I was like, it has been two hours and 20 minutes. So yeah, that's that's fair enough to end there. I, I really liked the spot. I liked everything involved in the spot. Mm. A character, like a supervillain whose power is actually just more of a liability. Well, because he is seen as like a bit of a joke. That was the good thing about him was that he seems a bit of a joke. He gets dismissed by Miles as a villain of the week at the beginning, but then becomes quite threatening because of how he's been treated. He kind of reminded me there's a Batman story arc where the Riddler takes over Gotham and the Riddler becomes very, very scary in that particular story. And there are moments when the spot kind of reminded me of the Riddler a little bit from that in terms of just how malevolent he was becoming. Doesn't quite go as dark as it does in that Batman Also the fact the spot's the guy that he he threw the bagel at in the first film. That's right, yes, yes, yeah, because yeah, it turns out Where, that he's from the first one. And, yeah. and it says bagel. It makes the ba- it makes yes, noise. that's right, yes. <laughs> yes, so, yeah, again, it's, it's all very well done. Yeah, I did think it was going to end there. This is going to wrap up because it can't go on for any more here unless it's another two hours <laughs> because you've set up massive story arcs now. The biggest being that Miles, it turns out, is his own worst enemy. That's the next film then, right? It's just a bit annoying that it's going to be next year. It's like, oh, why not have it at Christmas? And on the next episode, we'll be talking about The Flash, which shares some connective DNA with this movie, because The Flash, as you'll have seen from the trailers, is also about multiverses, and there's another Batman. It's Michael Keaton again. So, yeah, there were, it was odd watching The Flash and Spider-Verse in the same week, for reasons that I can't get into here, but it's like, this is one of those things that Hollywood does where it has two ant movies or two volcano movies or two Mars movies. <laughs> it's like it suddenly has two, two asteroid movies. Well, two asteroid movies, yeah. It's, um, it has two superhero multiverse movies that in some ways are very, very close bedfellows. In other ways, they are very different. But 
yeah, it'll be fascinating talking about The Flash with you next week. So yeah, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse can't come out on 4K Blu-ray quick enough for me. I will be snapping it up as soon as it comes out. Yeah, but we could do a double bill with um, Into. Yes, indeed. Because there will be things in there that will be referenced that I've just forgotten. Because there's so much coming at you, isn't there? I mean, there's just so much in the background. It is a triumph of animation, this film. And really shows sometimes just how lacklustre a lot of animation can be. Particularly animation that tries to look real. It's like, the point of this is that you can do this. Oh, I mean, that's that's still a thing that has a bit of an issue in uh, The Little Mermaid. It's like, animals can't emote. <laughs> and, and, and when they do the under the sea sequence, it's like, you know, the base blade, the da 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 None of those animals, as shown, meant to be, you know, quote-unquote photorealistic, are capable of playing those instruments. So... <laughs> That's the thing is, it's why why are you doing this? It's like Lion King, they don't have eyebrows. They just look that same expression the whole time. That expression being, I'm a bit hungry, I might eat you. Anyway, okay, well on that Disney note, shall we go back to Sony and say cheers for that film? That was really good, thoroughly enjoyed it. And shall we do plugs? Yeah, um, Mr Daniel, if uh, we're looking for you online, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find me on Instagram at RobDan75. You can find me on Letterboxd at letterbox.com slash RobDan. You can find my writing at electric-shadows.com where you'll be able to read my five-star review of Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. If you like Highlander, and who doesn't, you'll also like Another Time at McLeod, which is a podcast that Rob and I do about that film Spy- um, about that film Spider-Man, about that film Spylander. I said it's a crossover coming. About Highlander. And we go through it scene by scene. We've done the whole film, so it's all there to listen to. And you can find that wherever you listen to this. It's on Twitter at McLeod Time. And you can send us a Highlander-themed email at who wants to pod forever at gmail.com. Yes, it's called Another Time McLeod. I always think that we should spell it because people might not be able to find it. So it's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. M-A-C-L-E-O-D, yes, that's the one. Yeah. And how about you? Yeah, if you're looking for me online, you can follow me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. You can also find my writing, such as it is, at of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. I actually recently reviewed a film that I completely forgot to mention here, Hypnotic. Oh, I have yet to see it. Is it any good? Not really. Oh, that's a shame. That's the Robert Rodriguez um, and Ben Affleck one, yeah. right? Oh. It's a bit dour. Not stocky enough. Which is a surprise coming from Rodriguez, because he normally... And apparently he's been... He, like, first wrote the script in the early 2000s, at which point some of the ideas it's dealing with would have been quite novel. Mm. At this point, it's like, oh no, this is the same as everything else. <laughs> okay. Because his last film was um, Alita, right? Battle Angel Alita. I quite like that. It wasn't dour. Hypnotic is, yeah. It's not twisty-turny enough or schlocky enough to make... It's basically just not... It's one of those things, it's like, this isn't really a thing that we know Robert Rodriguez for. We know him for making, like, awesome B-movies. Mm. Like, it's a film that you kind of watch and go, like, oh, I'd be interested to see what M. Night Shyamalan might have made of this. It feels a bit like the kind of star in a concept movie that Nicolas Cage was doing in the mid-late 2000s. Like, I don't know, like, um, a Next or a... Or <laughs> all, all, all the sort of film that, like, James McAvoy was doing for five minutes in 2013 with, like, um, Trance or uh, Welcome to the Punch. Oh, God, right. Because it looks a bit Nolan as well. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely Odes a Big. The, the score in it is very sub Simmer. <laughs> Jesus. And um, there are a couple of shots where it's like, you've just lifted that from Inception, but you don't have the budget. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that wonderful time when Nicolas Cage was making films that literally sounded like how he was approaching filmmaking. Like, next. next. <laughs>
So yeah, so you've written a review of... Hypnotic. And it's available on your site. Yes. Brilliant. Oh, I would definitely read that. Excellent. Well, if you've liked what you've heard and want to leave us a star rating and or a review, then why not do that? It's really good fun. And you can do that wherever you're listening to your podcast. And it will be much appreciated because all the feedback is sincerely much appreciated. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Daniel. And well, thank you very much for listening. And we'll be with you again very soon. You could say we'll be back in a flash. Yes. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size, catches seeds, just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Is he strong? Listen, bud. He's got radioactive blood. Can he swing from a thread? Take a look overhead. Hey there, there goes a Spider-Man. In the chill of night, at the scene of a crime, like a streak of light, he arrives just in time. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Wealth and fame, he's ignored. Action is his reward to him. Life is a great big hang-up. Wherever there's a hang-up, you'll find a Spider-Man.